It's interesting to show with the rubber hand delusion that we cannot just turn off or on these kinds of uh, sensory motor contingencies on which the brain is running. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. The great cartoon philosopher Linus Van Pelt once said, There are three things I have learned never to discuss with people. Religion, politics, and the Great Pumpkin. In this special Halloween edition of Parsing Science, we're joined by Beatrice de Gelder, a cognitive neuroscientist with Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She'll talk with us about her research into what the rubber hand illusion can tell us about how our sense of body ownership can be manipulated. This episode is sponsored by the Center for Open Science. The Center believes an open exchange of ideas accelerates scientific progress towards solving our most challenging problems. At the Center for Open Science, you can pre-register your research proposals, pre-print your research articles, and share all of your research documentation in one place. Share your research with the world by using their free, innovative tool, the Open Science Framework. Learn more at www.cos.io. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Beatrice de Gelder. I'm Beatrice de Gelder. I am a, a cognitive neuroscientist, although that's just like any other neuroscientist. It just depends on the level of, uh, of phenomena and the level of explanations uh, we are looking for. Right, so I'm uh, by. Uh, I was born in Ghent, which is a city in Belgium, where very uh, historically very brave people live, and I don't know whether that is still the case. So in the days I was uh, going to become a student, psychology was very much unlike what psychology is in many places now, because basically we had uh, one third of the classes were physics. One third was uh, biology, one third was uh, mathematics, something like that. So having gotten a degree in uh, psychology, I then turned to uh, philosophy and uh, worked on the theory of knowledge. It's a field people call epistemology. Um, so later on, much later on, now we jump a couple of decades I actually returned to psychology, which by that time had become a very different discipline because it had started to connect, build bridges between um, various other domains of knowledge like physiology, uh, biology, in some cases, etc., etc. And I started doing some work in what is now called cognitive neuroscience. So in the end, um, I um, sort of started doing some experimental work combining in not in an obvious way, those different lines of interest. And there I was very motivated to show that the brain merges what it hears and what it sees, like audition and vision, merges that without any conscious effort. I mean, if you want to put it paradoxically, I've always been interested in consciousness, but mainly you could say in a negative way by showing that plenty of things happen outside any kind of uh, awareness and that awareness is not instrumental in uh, a whole range of uh, human cognitive and sensory motor skills. The rubber hand illusion is a classic psychological experiment first reported by French researcher Joseph Tastouvan in 1937. In it, people are induced to experience a false hand as being their own hand. Doug and I were curious to learn how the experiment is typically set up and carried out. So basically you have the experiment sitting on one side of the table, and then the participant has a real hand and, and a rubber hand in front of her, 
for him and one hand on the table and with a partition in between the two. So there is two hands on the table and one hand under the table. And the experimenter has two little brushes and both the real hand and the rubber hand, the two hands above the table are simultaneously stroked. And you have on the side of the experimenter, there is this metric uh, which is printed on the wood. And the participant is only asked, where is your hand? And allows uh, the experimenter to say, well, it's one centimeter, it's three centimeters, it's two centimeters and a half. Now, the synchronicity of the stroking is, of course, essential. Eh? Asynchronicity is a control condition. Okay? Basically, it has to be synchronous. But then the next question, of course, is how uh, asynchronous can it be still to work? Because there is a window for any kind of integration of information from the different senses. There is a window, a window of integration. Let me give you another example. If you look to, if you're watching a movie that's poorly dubbed, uh, people have uh, have studied that it that uh, for speech we can accept asynchrony up to almost 300 milliseconds. I mean, very tolerant for asynchrony. So for fairly high order meaning for stimuli, our brain is very tolerant for the for the synchrony. Just like for the rubber hand, our brain is very tolerant for the spatial uh, distance between the rubber hand and your hand. Beatrice and her team were interested in learning if the illusion can be enhanced by emotional sounds, so they divided their participants into four groups. One heard angry vocalizations. A second group listened to happy vocalizations. <laughs> Non-emotional vocalizations were used with a third group. While a control group heard no sounds. Here Beatrice talks with us about what it was that she and her team were interested in learning through these manipulations. You can at the same time put headphones on on people and... Um, have them listen. Uh, you don't have to say why this is important or not. And you vary the sounds people listen to. But we were, of course, interested in one specific category of sounds, namely in uh, creating fear in the subjects by having them listen to very angry voices coming through their headphones. Okay. Uh, we have recordings from emotional voices a long time ago, but we decided to go with an existing set uh, that consisted of validated auditory tokens. So we wanted, uh, we didn't want to have to use speech, I mean, like spoken language. We wanted to use vocalizations for one thing because vocalizations are much more automatic uh, than, than like a spoken message. Uh, like if I say, oh, I am very afraid of that, there might be a dragon uh, around the corner. I mean, that's that's not very immediate in terms of its impact on the perceptual system, right? While a scream of somebody fearing something or a very angry vocalization is, uh, is not language dependent, but is also much more immediate than uh, spoken language. I mean, you don't need for, for a scream to, that makes you worry should not last 1500 milliseconds, right? With 300 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds, you can you can get a, lot, a whole lot done. You can create a lot of fear with a very quick sound burst. 
Next, we asked Beatrice what she predicted would happen as a result of emotional sounds being played for participants as the rubber hand experiment was carried out. This was sort of uh, interesting in the lab because we were asking ourselves what, what will happen. And my personally, I was, I was uh, defending the wrong uh, hypothesis, the wrong uh, explanation. Namely, my prediction was when things become important, then the brain will no longer be tricked. Except that I was wrong about that. Because uh, if I was, had been correct about that, then um, the rubber hand effect would be reduced in a situation of stress. Instead, what we found is, which makes more sense actually, uh, and strengthens the, how, uh, how powerful these illusions are, uh, what we found is that when um, the person is actually unwillingly uh, listening to um, threatening sounds, to threatening voices, angry voices and things like that, that automatically there will be an extension of this protective uh, space around, around the body and that manifests itself in a more in the fact that a person is then more liable to undergo the illusion than not. After a minute and a half, participants in the rubber hand experiment are asked to close their eyes and point to the real hand. People in Beatrice's experiment were inclined to point closer to the prosthetic hand, especially so among those that listened to the emotional vocalizations. They also tended to report that the rubber hand began to resemble their own real hand in terms of shape, skin tone, freckles, or some other visual feature. Ryan and I wondered what the rubber hand looks and feels like, and where you go about getting one. It gives you what people call this uncanny valley feeling. It's like really eerie. I mean, it has real skin. It has real skin. I mean, it's, it has a grip. The hand has a grip. It's really rather lugubrious. But anyway, so my grad student, uh, who got the first author, she got very interested in it. I said, well, go and buy us one. Uh, basically, uh, you buy that from stores that... Uh, on the internet, like you buy everything on the internet, right? But this one, uh, this one is from stores that we work with window displays and things like that. So it turned out to be quite expensive to have a good quality one. I mean, like what three hundred dollars or so. But it's amazing how little is needed to trigger those illusions. It doesn't have to be scaled to the size of a real natural hand. And it doesn't have to be skin. It's, uh, it has to have some appearance. I mean, those are really very, very interesting issues. So does it have to look like skin or can it be wood, like people uh, use in sculpture classes, for example? And those are not trivial questions because it, they tell you something about where in the brain those illusions are based, of course. Next, Doug and I wanted to learn where and when research originated into how our minds experience our senses. Well, to put, to put this more generally, since, uh, since at least over 120 years, when people started paying attention to what, what they were actually doing in, in real life with their sensory systems, I mean, what audition, vision, tactile perception, was what was actually happening, we had a couple of brilliant people who sort of tried that out and said, hmm, maybe, maybe the world is not presented to my senses as ready-made edited photographs, right? When they started challenging this notion of the of the mind as a camera and playing around with with tactile, visual, and auditory sensations, one of the famous older tools for experiments was to use prism lenses on such that you see the world upside down. And that was that sounds trivial to us now, but at the time it was actually fascinating for people. Number one, you see the world upside down, but second, after a while, you can actually your brain can actually adapt to that. 
and you can function again. Your brain will adapt to this to this reversal of presentation of the world outside you. So people have played around with that, uh, and that of course is now seen as uh, related to uh, to much more recent research about sensory substitutions. Uh, those prism experiments uh, hold. That's one range of experiments. Other experiments was were, were consisted in playing around with the fact that in the natural environment, audition and vision go together. But if you try to understand what this is and how it happens, you try to pull apart things that naturally go together because you want to understand what the relative input is of audition and vision to making, to creating that uniform percept. We were interested to learn what inspired Beatrice to explore that which connects our emotions and our experiences. The rubber hand illusion is, of course, a, a variant on uh, an out-of-body experience. And I've never worked with this. Uh, I was never planning to work with this till uh, like two years ago, I suddenly realized, hey, this is sort of interesting because maybe that illusion is actually influenced by states of the body, okay? And it's like a good 10 years ago, I started working on how the body is perceived because people have tended to concentrate all the time on the face. But of course, we, we when we see a face most of the time, we see the rest of the body also. And we tend not to be aware uh, or to be less aware of all sorts of signals we get from so-called body language than we get from the face. So I had been working on this area and more specifically on how the brain processes uh, uh, whole body expressions of emotion. And uh, that sort of made me think, uh, hey, what would happen uh, in the rubber hand illusion? Would your, would your subjective feelings influence the rubber hand illusion? And that's when we sort of created this experiment. Because the rubber hand illusion is, is classically, in all the papers about it, is described as a phenomenon showing the importance of integration of audition and vision, of multisensory, as people call it. Integration from multiple senses. And it's certainly the case that um, in order to trigger these illusions, you have to play on the spatio-temporal synchrony of the of the input from the different senses. If you want to connect this to Halloween, I mean, just imagine two situations. Somebody with a big mask or whatever, a Halloween costume, uh, rings the doorbell. The impact of it upon you is going to be very different. If you just sit there uh, having a drink in the building and you say, yeah, 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 it's Halloween time, then you're not going to be affected very much. But imagine you come just off the phone because you have been talking to somebody very nasty and you had to fight for whatever it people fight for on the telephone, then it's going to impact you differently. There have been thousands of studies examining the rubber hand illusion. We wondered what it is that's typical about illusions that are studied in such research contexts and what they may say about our consciousness. So what is typical about illusions is that they are resistant. They will not go away when, like, for example, the most famous, as we mentioned already, the most famous is the Muller-Lyer illusion. And I can explain that to you again and again, and I can show you. I can cut little paper strips. I can take little pieces of wood. I can take whatever material and have you do it yourself. And still, you will undergo the illusion. Still, you will say, well, that segment is just longer than that segment. I see it. While well, you know, you even know it not to be true. You fall from them, even if rationally, 
you know this not to be the case. I mean, you can measure with your little yardstick as much as you want, and you will still see them as different. And the, the rubber hand illusion is just just the same kind of thing. And that's what we that in that in such cases of of uh, of genuine perceptual illusions, we will say that they are not penetrable. That's a complicated way of saying it. They are not penetrable by your cognitions. And that simply means to say that whatever you think or don't think, your visual experience is what it is. It's not changed by your beliefs. We were we really wanted to show this point about not just integration of sense of tactile and uh, vision uh, and visual input, but show that... Uh, that um, if you put the person and the system of the organism, if you put that in like a threatening condition, that those phenomena will persist and may become stronger, which was sort of an important thing to show. Because we still tend to picture our mind or our conscious mind as very much being in charge of all that, with illusions like things that we can turn on and off at uh, when we decide to do so. And it's interesting to show with the rubber hand illusion that we cannot just turn off or on these kinds of uh, sensory motor contingencies on which the brain is running. Next, Brian and I asked Beatrice to talk with us about the role of research into the rubber hand illusion in advancing science. I mean, you, with, you can't make good science with confused, confused philosophical concepts. There is, a, there is a very much a tendency of applying high-order concepts coming from philosophy to uh, to the cognitive and social sciences. But I think I still think that's a very tricky business. There is an old saying by um, the famous philosopher at the time, uh, Hilary Putnam, who said that basically he was saying, well, we need another century or two of empiricism uh, to make progress in the sciences and not philosophical concepts. But... Uh, this, for me, was a very straightforward idea to, uh, to, to, to test. Unfortunately, it takes, of course, much longer than uh, uh, you expect. You say, well, let's do this experiment. Wouldn't it be fun to know what's going on? It would be great. Let's try this. Uh, and then, of course, once you're stuck, it takes a year and a half before you're there. And then uh, another six months before there's a journal that likes the paper. And this experiment is a little bit of the main track because it introduces this notion of, uh, of emotional experience of the subject of the rubber hand illusion, which people hadn't done before. And uh, by doing things the way we did and finding what we found, we sort of entered new territory, namely this whole purely personal uh, aspect, which um, is not normally connected to the rubber hand illusion. People have played very many times with the rubber hand illusion and uh, introduced all sorts of uh, variations to the experimental situation, but not the one we introduced here because the notion always was that the rubber hand illusion is basically a matter of uh, combination of inputs, sensory inputs from what you hear to what you see to what you feel. And people don't expect that to be modulated by your subjective experience. Beatrice's research interests concern the emotional meaning of visual stimuli, the linking between emotions, gestures, and facial expressions, people's recognition of faces when they're inverted, and the interaction between auditory and visual processes. Doug and I wondered where the ideas for such diverse topics as hers come from. 
But usually I'm the one that has the crazy idea and uh, somehow I convey it with enough uh, enthusiasm and I have the kind of people who who understand uh, the good part and the crazy part and then we go for it. I mean, that's the, we've done that a number of other times and it's good to have critical people around you because uh, you need to know whether things are feasible, etc., etc. Luckily, um, people are increasingly aware that science is teamwork you cannot actually achieve much scientific results on your own. I mean, pretty much everybody, including even in mathematics, people collaborate, they bounce off ideas on each other. Or in the case of neuroscience, you need very much an integrated skill set for achieving a study. So collaboration is a great thing. Uh, but it's very hard to look steered in advance. Interdisciplinarity that often comes with collaboration is a difficult thing because it takes a long time before people speak the same language and actually understand each other. So I would say, on the one hand, uh, science is, is, a, is a team venture. On the other hand, uh, everybody has to have their inputs uh in uh, in sort of at different levels of the work, and of course nowadays in neuroscience things are getting so uh, so fantastically complex and multidisciplinary that nothing can happen without without teamwork. Ryan and I were curious whether Beatrice planned to carry out further research into the rubber hand illusion, and if so, what direction it might take. I'm not uh, sure that right now we plan uh, more rubber hand illusions in that specific sense of the paradigm, but we have also used those uh, those sound uh, fragments in uh, in a recent study actually that just came out last week, which is sort of interesting, um, which picks up the same idea that natural natural sounds with with immediate relevance for the for the human perceptual system will be treated uh, in a special way so this is a, a study on spatial localization i mean how good are we at uh, at localizing where a sound comes from and in that study we show that uh, people are better at uh, judging where a sound comes from when that sound is relevant for their behavior so what we are doing is a lot of a lot of research that involves, let's say, whole body illusions, if you want to put it that way, and because the rubber hand illusion is, of course, just a version of out of body experience. We are extending into full full body illusion, which we have been done in parallel, basically by using virtual reality. I embody you as an avatar, and then I send your avatar out there and, and measure the experiences of your the avatar you identify with. So it's whole body illusions in a way. Lastly, we asked Beatrice what her hopes are for the future of cognitive neuroscience research. Well, I think one interesting issue in all this, I'm sure it's not the only one, but the one that comes to mind right now, is why do these things work? I mean, why do all this, uh, all these experiences work? When, ki when kids play video games, the human brain body uh, system uh, is functioning at very low levels when it takes reality in complex realities in a very straightforward way, right? I mean, we always tend to think that it all depends on our attitudes or beliefs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, there is so much built into our uh, brain-body software, hardware system, organism, as you want to call it, that uh, lucky for us, it doesn't depend on our attitudes, beliefs, or 
So a bit more respect for the complexity of the bodily machinery rather than overestimating its power may be a good, uh, may be a good thing, no? A bit of modesty in the face of how complex, uh, how rich and complex our uh, system is. That was Beatrice de Gelder discussing the paper Effective Vocalizations Influence Body Ownership as Measured in the Rubber Hand Illusion, which she published with Tani Engelin, Rebecca Watson, and Francisco Pavani. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials she discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Laura Stevenson, an associate professor of political science with the University of Western Ontario. She'll discuss her research into how changes to the rules of electoral systems might also change support for female candidates. So just think for a minute, if there was no electoral college in the U.S., how different would things be right now? The rules of the game have really structured who ends up winning. We hope that you'll join us again 